The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Who was Hermann von Oppeln Bronikowski? And why was he so important to the Germans on D-Day? Turns out he was the only enemy commander capable of defeating the Allied forces on the 6th of June, 1944. Welcome to season three of Unknown History D-Day Stories. I'm your host, Giles Milton, and today we're talking about a colorful SS Panzer commander who was tasked with driving Allied forces back into the sea. Colonel Hermann von Oppeln Bronikowski was one of the great panzer leaders of Nazi Germany, described as an exuberant, dashing, gay individual with a noble Prussian pedigree that stretched back to the age of chivalry. War was in his blood. His dynasty had fought their way through Central Europe for the better part of half a millennium. He certainly looked the part, with well-chiseled features, black oiled hair and an engaging smile. As one of his friends said, he was, frankly, enjoying the war for the thrills that he got. Opeln Bronikowski had fought as a panzer commander on the Eastern Front, and he knew the value of speed when it came to tank warfare. Strike hard and fast. That was how to fight with tanks. He knew that the only conceivable way of driving the Allies back into the sea was for the Germans to hit them with everything they had, including the mechanised and highly trained panzer divisions. But Hitler had insisted that these panzer divisions could not go into battle without his express command. Since this didn't come until after midday on the 6th of June, the colonel could do nothing but sit and wait while the Allies poured ashore. He was furious. He considered Hitler's senior staff to be incompetent amateurs who, he said, knew nothing of the problems of infantry or of panzers. Nor, for that matter, did he give a damn about Hitler. Like so many noble-born Prussians in the military, he viewed the Fuhrer as an ignorant upstart with little grasp of modern warfare. And now, when clear direction was most needed, the colonel found himself lacking the necessary permission to enter battle with the 127 Mark IV tanks of his panzer division. Not until early afternoon was he allowed to wheel his tanks northwards, with the aim of driving a wedge between the British troops on Sword Beach and the Canadians on Juneau. It was a vitally important operation for the Germans. If the colonel could split the Allied beachhead in two, it would be far easier for the German forces to pick off the various landing zones one by one. It's a curious fact, given the vital importance of his mission, that Oppeln Bronikowski's panzers were to receive no additional support for their counterattack. The Panzer Lair Division, stationed 75 miles outside Paris, was not to receive its marching orders until later that day the 12th SS Panzer Division was similarly paralysed. It therefore fell to the colonel and to him alone to reverse the fast-growing catastrophe. The stakes 
could scarcely have been higher, as one senior general, Eric Marx, was quick to point out that afternoon. Oppeln, he said, the future of Germany may very well rest on your shoulders. If you don't push the British back into the sea, we've lost the war. The colonel snapped a crisp response. General, I intend to attack immediately. But attacking the beachhead was no easy matter. To do so, his tanks first had to cross the River Orne, a major logistical feat given that all the nearest bridges had either been destroyed or captured by the Allies. He had no option but to lead his tanks towards Caen in the hope that one or more of its bridges was still intact. And this is where his difficulties began. Among those riding alongside him was a 19-year-old corporal, Werner Kortenhaus. Hitherto, Kortenhaus's attitude to the Allied landings had typified the headstrong arrogance of the panzer elite. There would be a sharp fight, followed by a long bout of victorious celebration. We were pretty convinced that by the evening we'd be back in our quarters, he said. But as his tank rumbled towards Caen, he got his first inkling that they were facing a formidable enemy. When we finally reached the top of the rise, we saw huge black clouds in the distance over the city. Caen was still aflame from the earlier bombing raid. Courtenhouse was unexpectedly shaken. In that moment, I had the feeling that we were now actually in the war. It was then that I realised that there was no chance of being back in our quarters that night. As the gigantic armoured convoy snaked its way through the city's outskirts, the scale of the destruction became all too evident. Entire buildings had been shattered by thousand-pound bombs, blocking the streets with massive chunks of concrete. Even Oppeln Bronikowski was shocked. A complete shambles, he said. It took many hours for all his tanks to cross the only intact bridge. They regrouped on the far side of Caen. Scarcely five miles now lay between his armoured convoy and the sea, but those five miles held a unique geological feature. The chalky bedrock thrust upwards into an escarpment that afforded a fine panorama over the surrounding countryside. Colonel Oppeln Bronikowski was only too aware of the value of such high ground. It was every tank man's dream. Not until 5pm was the colonel ready to fire up his tank's engines and prepare to do battle with the Allies. The thrust towards the coast was to be twin-pronged. The colonel himself was to take 25 tanks towards the heights of Bierville village, some two miles from their current position. Meanwhile, his most trusted captain, Wilhelm von Gottberg, would lead a further 35 tanks towards the high ground at Perrier. From these two commanding positions, they'd be able to wreak havoc on the Allied forces below. Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, honey, you know your dad's world-famous chili. Yeah, the one that takes 24 hours to make. So I was trying to help out and bring the pot to the table, but it was like super hot. And then I um dropped it. And now the floor looks all, you know, stained with chili. Look, the point is, you guys cool with pizza for dinner? <laughs> Honey? Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. 
With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. Wilhelm von Gottberg was the first to move towards the Allied forces, thrusting his 35 tanks towards Perrier. He soon found his advance stalled. A thwacking explosion rocked his vehicles long before he got close to the high ground, triggering a series of powerful blasts. When it was safe to peer outside, he was aghast to see that 10 of his tanks had been knocked out. Colonel von Oppeln Bronikowski was also moving forwards, aware that he needed to get as close as possible to the Allied lines. His Mark IV tanks were equipped with 75mm long-barrel guns that were deadly when fired at a nearby target. But their maximum range was no more than half a mile, rendering them quite useless against the British long-range anti-tank guns. The colonel sent five of his tanks ahead. They were to scout up a small incline in order to check the lie of the land. It proved a fatal error, for they were silhouetted against the sky, presenting the perfect target. The moment they reached the ridge, they were suddenly hit one after the other by British anti-tank fire. Opeln Bronikowski had a soldier's respect for the enemy and would later admit that the British gunners were better by more than 600 yards at firing. He continued his advance with greater caution, but soon found himself facing a bruising assault from the British anti-tank guns. The Staffordshire Yeomanry troops opened up with everything they had, shredding metal and gouging craters. One shell exploded right next to the tank of his comrade, Captain Hare, ripping away the protective skirt that covered the tracks. It just swirled up and literally flew through the air. Captain Hare was terrified. I'd always been frightened of being burnt to death in the cockpit of my tank, so I lengthened the lead of my microphone so that I could sit behind the turret. It was not a wise decision, but it was born of experience. I'd had such appalling experiences earlier when I'd had to extract the shrunken bodies of comrades from tanks that had been burned out and put them in coffins that were as little as three quarters of a metre long. It was not long before this fate came close. A second shell burst onto his tank, flinging a deadly wave of shrapnel through the air. He felt a searing pain in his lower half. I fell to the ground and had to feel around my knees with my hands to check that I still had my legs. Blood was pouring out of me. He would survive, but he was seriously injured. Colonel von Oppeln Bronikowski knew he was outnumbered and outgunned. He also knew that there was no hope of recapturing the high ground that lay between him and the coast. Dismayed and dejected, he turned to the blood-soaked Captain Herr and asked for advice. Herr shrugged. If you don't know, then how on earth should I know? As the enemy fire increased in intensity, Oppeln Bronikowski's great panzer advance was stalled and then stopped. Only a tiny unit of grenadiers would fight their way through to the beach that afternoon. When they got there, they stumbled across a few German defenders still hiding out in a bunker. They represented the last shattered remnants of the Atlantic Wall, a forlorn group of survivors who'd yet to be spotted by the Allies. 
It was clear that further resistance was hopeless without the support of more panzers. It was also clear that more panzers would never come. Colonel von Oppeln-Bronikowski's tank offensive had been permanently stalled by the brawn of the Staffordshire Yeomanry. As he dug his tanks into defensive positions in the wet soil, he witnessed German officers retreating from the front line with 20 or 30 men apiece. They were haggard and dejected and had defeat in their eyes. He was aghast at the spectacle of his fellow fighters throwing in the towel. He suddenly felt like a broken man. I never thought I'd see the day this would happen, he later admitted. It was his D-Day epiphany. I knew then that the war was really finished. This week's Unknown History Snippet takes up the story of General Eisenhower's staff headquarters in Portsmouth on the south coast of England. He and his senior staff were based in Southwark House, a stucco-fronted mansion with a stack of pillars and a facade that gleamed like icing. It had been requisitioned by the military at the beginning of the war, but it was not until a few months before D-Day that Eisenhower and his staff moved in. It was known as SHAFE, Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Force. It was also home to another SHAFE, Eisenhower's cat, who'd been given to the general a few months earlier by one of his staff sergeants. The house was the nerve centre of the invasion, and it was bristling with energy as staff read through the latest information. The place was equipped with all the latest technology, wireless communications, coding rooms, and a vast map room, which displayed a huge map of the Normandy coast. Yet for much of the day, Eisenhower received very little news, causing him to grow increasingly nervous as the day went on. At one point, he was sitting with his aide, Harry Butcher, in the communications post. It was so quiet, they could overhear a British officer listening to a naval transmission. It was coming through in glub-glubs and blurp-blurps of scramblees, said Butcher, who saw that Eisenhower was growing increasingly nervous. God, blurted Ike after several minutes, this must be bad, it's so long. In fact, the naval report brought relatively good news. Just two destroyers were known to have sunk. Eisenhower wished for one thing alone that afternoon on D-Day, that he could be in France directing operations from the front line of battle. In the absence of having orders to issue or anything else to do, he began planning his following day's visit to the Allied beachhead. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Unknown History. In the next episode, we'll be returning to Omaha Beach to hear how a handful of courageous Americans were able, finally, to break through the German defences. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.